the one that should be worried. You're a freak. You're heading for big trouble. I saw a ton of live music during my college days. Life at my college radio station opened me up to an endless waterfall of grunge, punk, and alternative rock. But the music I found myself warming up to the most was cold and machine-made, industrial, electronic, bands like Nine Inch Nails and Depeche Mode. I wanted in. I bought a synthesizer. I bought a sampler. The bald freak in the black trench coat headbanging and slam dancing to Knights of Reb and Ministry at the all-ages shows at the Limelight was no longer just a fan. I wanted to be on that stage. I wanted to wear leather pants, sweat under the hot lights, feel the PA hum under my feet. I wanted to trigger samples and scream into an SM57. Steven Siebold wanted those same things too. I was as hungry as I've ever been in my life to create music for a living, like my style of music, which was angry and combative. I'll just say it, anarchist-minded. Fans of his music know him simply as Siebold, the lead singer and principal songwriter in an industrial rock band called Hate Department. This style of music had apexed in this moment. Crunchy double-track guitars, programmed basses and beats, glossy synths, sneering nihilistic vocals. It was a few ticks of time in music history, decidedly post-grunge, but pre-new metal and electronica. Bands like Daft Punk, Aphex Twin, and Chemical Brothers would carry the torch into the new century. But for now, we were in a glorious archaic era of machine-made angst. I didn't realize how much of an anarchist I was at that time. I just knew how I felt about what I wanted to say in music. And I said it the way you would expect a punk to, just kind of like off the cuff, angry and loud and confrontive and all that stuff. It's possible that Siebel didn't feel like an anarchist in the mid-90s because anarchy had gone mainstream. Warner Brothers signed the German band called Armageddon Dildos. Al Jorgensen's industrial supergroup Revolting Cox were also signed. When Cox and Dildos were now on major labels, what was anarchy anyway? Siebold and Hate Department fit right in. The band's second album, Omnipresent, gained some notoriety in the underground. Nothing to gamble, less to save. Then it started popping up on college radio charts. Then in Keyboard Magazine and Rolling Stone, pretty quickly, things started happening. Nobody's ever prepared for success, even that level of success at the time. It kind of shocked me and startled the band. We toured like crazy for all of those years, all the way up to about 2000. The unborn child. I worked as hard and as furiously as I could as Hate Department.
Eight departments' moderate success led to some excellent adventures for Siebold. Some seemed obvious, while others were unexpected. This song you may have heard here before is called Take My Breath Away. Three decades later, Stephen Siebold sits down with me for episode 132 of the Independent Minded Podcast to offer me reassurance that it's never too late to have an adventure, that hard work has rewards, and that even as you get older and wiser, you can never shake your punk rock roots. I don't know if I could write songs that aren't about people challenging authority. I just don't know if I'm capable of it. Steven and I talk about the rise and then the return of Hate Department, his experience in other popular bands and projects, and buying and living in a school with a whole bunch of mannequins. Yep, it's just your normal rock and roll success story, documented right here on Independent Mind. I have I have one question for you. No, please, yeah, go ahead. Your jingle for your podcast, is that you? Yeah, that's me. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> so awesome. time Siebold and I talked was, I don't know, about 28 years ago. I think it's so awesome that we talked all those years ago because we have <laughs> we have that in common. You could probably think back on some of that conversation or, or that, or at least the energy of that time and uh, the bands that we liked at that time, they were truly punk. I listened to so much music back then because it was my job. I mean, that was, and that was the job that I wanted. And it's still the job that I want today. Like it's one of the coolest jobs in the world to tell other people what you think is cool. If you're, especially if you're one of those people yourself. Yeah. So when I met you, like I was looking to be you. I was a college radio music director. I had hate department and heavy rotation. The radio station was made of silly putty. Shit. We were lucky to be even broadcasting back then. So instead of a recorded interview, Siebold simply called the studio to say thanks for the support. I was also a drummer who had shifted gears to synths. So it was super cool to be able to talk to a dude who was doing exactly what I wanted to do, playing the type of music we both loved. Turns out we had a lot more in common than I thought. My story is almost identical to yours. I was a drummer. I uh, discovered synthesizers. Like I recognized, do you recognize the um, ability to replace 
band members and do it all of yourself was really empowering in one way, but also isolating in others. Yeah, I recognize the trade-off. The typical disagreements with band members about musical direction, narcissistic battles over performance and creative control. When you invest in a synth and a sampler, it's not just that you no longer need to play drums. You also no longer need a drummer at all. Man is responsible. Siebold had already figured out the formula writing the songs using his industrial toys, then bringing a band aboard to fill out the sound and make it work live. And it was thanks to college radio that he was able to start building a buzz for Hate Department. Half of the time it was music directors, station managers, even college radio DJs. The ambitious ones would host events and they'd pull a budget together and they would bring Hate Department in. strange to talk about this because it was such a different world. I mean, it was such a different world then. I, I couldn't, my ability to even play that role completely vanished after September 11th because the name hate department was perceived differently after that. Commercial radio stations, not surprisingly, hyper-reacted to the events of 9-11. The behemoth media company I worked for at the time didn't straight up ban certain songs from the airwaves in the tragedy's aftermath. Instead, they pretty much removed them from their playlists altogether. This included everything from Metallica's Enter Sandman to the Beatles' Obla D Obla Da to the entire Rage Against the Machine catalog. Looking back, it's infuriating. A bunch of pompous dweebs sitting around a table deciding that love is a battlefield feels too tone deaf to serve to the American public. But for Siebold, airplay wasn't the concern. His whole image, his band's whole ideology had been compromised. Part of my stage presence was to pick on the audience and kind of motivate them into questioning their own reason for being there. And it was effective, but it was dangerous. <laughs> it proved to be pretty dangerous, but I couldn't be that after September 11th. I just couldn't, it wasn't possible. The other side of me wants to empower people. I want to hand people in the audience a hammer. Let's get to work. We gotta, we gotta break shit up. And because we're the hate department, we're gonna end with a song affectionately titled "Fuck You." 
if you do it back. In that way, I was blessed. I had a few synthesizers. I was really ambitious. I studied the right things for the time. And my finger was on enough of a pulse. And I was really angry. People liked that I was angry back then. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Anger was in when Hate Department started to blossom, and so the band's first two albums were well-received. Then in 1999 came the album Technical Difficulties. Man, that, that put me on, a, on the map in a different way with the song I Release It. got that one too, yeah. Oh gosh, so Release <laughs> It had, you know, that like had top 10 radio airplay and my life completely changed. I had to pay my band a lot more because they were full-time touring members. I made a lot more money, I barely slept. And I, I hung in a different circle because I was also producing records on the side, like I did a record with Information Society. I played synthesizers for Berlin. It was these opportunities that put Siebold in unfamiliar territory, a place where he could put his anger in his back pocket and help shape the sound of other bands instead. Terry Nunn is not only beautiful and insanely good singer, she was super relevant at that time. This might have been like 98. So when I got meetings, I here's me kind of like the guy from Hate Department uh, with the crazy haircut and everything, but I'm walking into Interscope and Restless Records and I'm walking in and I'm talking to these I got to bypass A&R departments and talk to execs because Terry Nunn was already, she had a platinum record on her wall already. And it was in those meetings on the major label spaceship that Siebel realized that, as far as hit making was concerned, he was still a punk rock alien. His interactions with the big dogs at Interscope left him pondering the music industry's shaky ecosystem. I met a couple of other execs there and they were very much the same. They were like removed from what was cool. All the A&R guys were young and they looked, they, half of them looked like me. So I knew they knew what was up, but I wondered about the industry a lot after that. I wondered if they really got to make decisions based on whether they really believed in something or whether it's because someone told them it had to be that way. What a, oh God, what a weird life. <laughs> what a weird life. <laughs> But producing bigger artists wound up opening bigger doors for Siebel's own music. They liked me because I was just, I'm not a glamorous person. I just say what's on my mind and I'm super not afraid to step on any toes. And I think they appreciated that. That's how Hate Department got signed to Restless. I shopped those same four songs that I recorded with Berlin to Restless Records. And Restless used to be a bunch of epic guys. Epic Records guys. And I walked in there and I was sitting there and, and of course everybody wanted to know how Terry looked. They heard the songs and they were like, cool, they sound great. How does she look? And I said, she's a fucking babe. I mean, she's gorgeous and she listened to her voice. She's killer in there. And then somebody at the meeting said, who the fuck are you? And I said, I was like, I just produced him. I'm the guy from Hate Department. And that was the right and wrong thing to say because the whole conversation shifted to Hate Department and they signed me. You're free to go. You never get away. Rising, it's building up. Release it. 
my influences shifted from like maybe Frontline Assembly and Nine Inch Nails and Skinny Puppy to that California breakbeat thing that was going on. Like, of course, I love things like The Prodigy. That yeah. Prodigy record, Fat of the Land, like fucked me up. I love that record. You remember, like, it didn't happen right away, like the Crystal Method thing. It took a minute. Late 90s, yeah. I, of yeah, course, yeah. I mean, and I was, again, trying to emulate that sound as well because yeah, yeah, I was still <laughs> figuring it out. Fatboy Slim yeah. and Orbital and Underworld and all well, the UK that, stuff. So it took a minute. There were stuff that we were already guys like you and me were probably already listening to but it kind of like took the mobies of the world to really hit a home run with it i infused a lot of that type of technology which was really stealing from like soul and r&b and funk and sliding it into hate department beat me down like touring like that hanging out at major record labels as the internet was growing the following record that i released in 2001 i was ready to hang it up and just not be hate department anymore the, the conflict and the difficulty of having a band named hate department after 2001 was i was ready to call it I was revitalized in 2013 in a way I kind of like found my stride again. And uh, New Ghost is definitely my deepest record because I knew what I was saying by then. I wasn't afraid to say I'm an anarchist. I'm neither or none of your parties, but I support you all because you're doing a great job making it ugly and chaotic. And that chaos is beautiful. And that's just how I stand. That's just where I stand. And so I was more comfortable being that person. write angry music and say whatever I wanted because I wasn't questioning myself. It took me 10 years to get there though. Why does it take us as artists as humans, why does it take us so long to have these awakenings, to find our true selves, to be brave and honest in our self-assessments? Why did I react that way? What was I so mad about anyway? I really struggled in school and really suffered with grades and getting in trouble because I was so resistant to authority figures. Where'd you grow up? I was born in Johnson City, New York, and my parents moved to California when I was a kid. So I pretty much grew up in California. What part? Redondo Beach, uh, Newport Newport Beach, Irvine. Yeah, that's not a place where anger really is. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no blossoms. way. No, no way. Not at all. And then I spent my teenage years in the Sierra Mountains in a, at a ski resort called Mammoth Lakes. So it's ridiculous to even say that I was angry about something. All of my frustration came from 
people telling me what to do and think and how to act. And so what a silly and childish realization, but it's just what I suffered. What my, my affliction was is just don't fucking tell me what to do all the time and what to believe and what to think. And that's every kid's problem. I was just uh, belligerent and, and kind of disgusted by authority and politicians and rules. I wanted people to recognize how powerful their individuality was. And I, yeah, I was alone in it a lot of the times. So yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> I can remember a time where most of my greatest friends went off to college to drink beer and make out with girls. Meanwhile, I was in my little closet of a room in my parents' house, commuting to school and spending most of my free time surrounded by samplers, synths, and CDs. For Siebold, it was the same, and he thrived on it. I learned that I wasn't stupid, but that if I was left to my own devices and someone wasn't telling me what to do and what to think and how to do it, that I was quite clever. I think maybe a gift was this music that you and I are talking about that we were so into at that time that was it was rock, it was punk, but it was very technology-oriented. Remember that that genre, or those genres, let's say, they didn't have a ton of boundaries. So I was allowed to experiment with things sonically and technically and kind of get away with it because the genres and, and the fans of music allowed it at that time. I'm not gonna, I'm not dissing metal, but metal has rules. If you really wanted to be accepted, you had to play by them. But that music that we were talking about from the mid nineties up to the early two thousands, people pushed a ton of fucking envelopes. I mean, I'm not a Marilyn Manson fan per se, but man, that guy pushed a ton of envelopes. When people incorporate that mentality of pushing the envelope and doing things weird or atonal or out of time, it all makes sense to me because that's what it was for us back in the 90s. We're like, what the fuck is that? And then all of a sudden you're a huge fan. That's what Skinny Puppy was for me. A friend of mine played me rabies and I was like, oh my God, that's terrible. And I couldn't stop listening to it. <laughs> and I became a huge Skinny Puppy fan. And uh, they're one of the only bands that I went back to the records previous to uh, my discovery of them, which was Rabies, and fell in love with everything they did. Now is the only thing that's real. Bands, bands. The priests used to watch over the people. Now they're watching the people. Siebold mentions other anti-establishment influences we both love. Bands like Killing Joke and Public Image Limited. Flowers of Romance, as a drummer, and Martin Atkins playing on that, I was like, that's what I gotta be. I've gotta be somebody who's so weird that I don't care. I can say things that are completely abstract 
And if someone doesn't understand, then good. Little did teenage Siebel know that he'd one day share the stage and the studio with idols from both these bands in the industrial supergroup Pigface. Ogre did his solo project. The first record was called Welt, and that record came out and was really successful. Hate Department was the opener on that tour, and Martin came out to the show to see Ogre because obviously they were friends and had collaborated in Pigface. And Martin saw Hate Department, we shook hands, and he said, Hey, come out and do Pigface with me. And I thought he was. I thought he was fucking with me, and I thought I was like, oh, yeah, sure, man. Martin's such an interesting guy socially. He's somebody that's, like, threatening because he's Martin Atkins, and he's, he's like, a true punk rocker. He'll, like, elbow you and go, hey, you want to get a cup of coffee? So he's one of the most disarming people you'll ever meet, and I was very disarmed by that. And I got back to California at the end of the tour, and he actually called me and said I wasn't kidding. I'm going to do a pig face tour. You should come out. And I was so nervous. I got on the plane, like trembling, and somebody picked me up at the airport in Chicago and took me directly to a rehearsal. I thought I was going to pee in my pants when I walked into that rehearsal because uh, obviously I was a very big fan of things like Murder, Inc. And I certainly knew who Chris Connolly was. I mean, ministry influenced me hugely. Uh, I was a big fan of Megaly Chin. She was in the room. I, I was, I was, like gulping with nervousness. Surrounded by heavy hitters in the genre he loves, Siebold finally finds himself among his people. I, I've played with some of the best drummers there are out there, and Martin is still my favorite. He's like John Bonham with a bunch of firecrackers in his pocket. He's awesome and a fucking monster drummer. led Steven Siebel to Hate Department, and Hate Department led him to Big Face. Then ultimately, anger led Steven Siebel to the love of his life. Michelle was invited into Big Face. Her band, called Voodoo, was on Invisible Records. So I arrived in Chicago, and Big Face is a huge group of musicians, right? And Michelle was there. We got on really well on that tour. We loved a ton of the same music and talked about the same kind of music and became really good friends. And at the end of the tour, I didn't want to be away from her. The two would ultimately marry, all thanks to a band called Pig Face. I tell Martin that. I told, I told him that again last week. I said, man, most of my life's joy is because of your dumb band. full of more love and gratitude than anger, an older, wiser Steven Siebold has, in a manner of speaking, found an interesting place to settle down and continue his education. South Central Ohio. We bought an old school. We live in a classroom of an old school and use the rest for business. <laughs> you live in a school? Weird. Yes, we live in a school, an old school. 
Desperate for more space, two bohemian entrepreneurs find a new way to be creative. No one would want to live in a small village in Ohio that has a population of 800. It's not desirable. So your money goes really far. I saw the school online. It was an auction and the auction closed that night. So we jumped in the car. We were living in Indiana at the time and we drove over and it was big enough to fill our needs and it was modern enough to be doable. You know what I mean? Like the power worked and the plumbing more or less worked and the village was maintaining it as a building that the community used. So we knew that it was doable. The Siebels were now the proud owners of a 10,000 square foot school. It sounds like a Ghostbusters situation. Did you have to like reimagine it to, you know, to make oh, it yeah. what it oh, is? Oh yeah, oh my gosh. And how do you go about even doing that? I mean, are you are you that handy? Did like, how did you, did you outsource it? I'm very ambitious about learning things and I'm clever and resourceful. The hardest part is in rural Ohio, it's almost as cold as Chicago. And so my first order was to figure out how to make it warm enough for us to live in. And then I ran radiant heaters in the three rooms. We live in the kitchen, one of the classrooms and one of the bathrooms. That's where we like live. And the classroom is like a luxury apartment. Let's put it that way. It's a big classroom. This all obviously sounds super romantic, but what about the other 8,000 square feet? The cafeteria was the gymnasium. That's where we really needed the room. The gymnasium is full of one of our businesses. It's basically a big basketball court. What do you put in a basketball court as a business? What, how does that translate? Okay, that's where that's where this conversation is going to get super cool and weird. Um, Michelle is a. Uh, it's already there, but she's, yeah, it's there now. Yeah, Michelle's a super hot shit mannequin refinisher. Ah, uh, yeah, mannequins. Say what now? Mannequins are made of fiberglass, and fiberglass is not biodegradable. So we decided to start buying up these mannequins and refinishing them and selling them to what became collectors. I loved the 80s and the 90s. I would buy a mannequin and put it in the corner just because it looked amazing, you know, dress it up as somebody I liked. And that's the buyer market now is people that love mannequins or people that were merchandisers back in the day. Michelle has an insane mannequin collection. There's 600 mannequins out in that gymnasium. You ever see um, the movie Tourist Trap? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking of right now. Tourist Trap. Beautiful young people looking for excitement are tricked, terrorized. And trapped. God help those who get caught in the tourist trap. <laughs> So in rural Ohio, we're the weirdos, right? Um, uh, yep. Siebold is no longer an angry young man. He's a mannequin man. But even in this next phase of his life, he remains hungry for music. I went out last night. I went to Columbus to see these five young industrial bands, and I was right at the front. I'm an old school dude. And I was fucking bopping around like everybody else. And he's still making it, too in a new project called Standalone. find myself here. I write music here. I've got great pets here. Michelle and I do all the dumb stuff. We go kayaking. We're near my lake. 
I fucking hate shoveling snow, but I do. I mean, I like the seasons. It gets beautifully summery here, and then the winters, it looks like the moon. When you're with a fellow creative and feeding off their weird and wonderful inspiration, the moon seems appropriate enough. Siebold has more hate department songs written, certainly enough for a new album. But even though it's been a decade since the last one, he's in no rush to release it. The gift from all of that for me is that I don't have to nurture my fan base. I don't have to do the selfie thing. I don't have to be too witty, and it's better if I don't talk too much. Having a little bit of traction and releasing records in the 90s gives me a huge advantage over the artists that I know that are coming up now. And I always tell them that. I was like, man, I wish I would I wish I could loan you my time machine and send you back to 1995 because you would be sick. Everyone would love you. <laughs> For an independent-minded veteran like Siebold to stay relevant in today's era of reels, shorts, and TikToks, just like he did in the mid-90s, he's going to have to figure out the gear to roll with the times. That means I have to learn some new stuff. I have to learn how to stream and stream on multiple platforms at the same time. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to do it anyways. If you can figure out how to live in a school, I think you're adaptable <laughs> enough to figure out how to stream. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Find out more about Hate Department at hatedept.bandcamp.com and check out the debut standalone album at standalonegp.bandcamp.com. Big thanks to Siebold for the awesome conversation and big thanks to you, loyal podcast listener. Subscribe to Independent Minded and leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Find out more at baldfreak.com slash podcast. Independent Minded is a Bald Freak Music production, and I'm still Ron Scalzo. You're a natural. You're a freak. You're a freak.